Welcome to Learte del Arme, the Bolognese podcast, where we discuss the intricacies of the Bolognese tradition with the practitioners, translators, authors, and teachers working to bring the art back to life. Today's guest is Pike Poland. Pike began his HEMA journey in 2014 uh, with uh, Swordwind Historical Swordsmanship under Eric Lowe. Originally focusing on early KDF sources, uh, they transitioned to primarily studying the Bolognese text, focusing on two-handed sword, sword alone, sword and buckler. Um, they also frequently dabble in uh, heresy and uh, dive into a little bit of Gadino from time to time. Mike, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me. I'm excited to be here. Yeah, it's 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 great to have you. Um, you have always been uh, one of my favorite fencers to watch. Um, I uh, I think in an earlier podcast I mentioned. Um, probably one of the most epic fights that I've ever witnessed uh, between you and uh, Chris Nolan at uh, <laughs> um, Lord Baltimore's challenge um, in the, uh, in the semifinal. And um, it was one of the most like technically proficient fights that I've ever seen in my entire life. It was a really um, hard fight. It, it was a really hard fight. <laughs> he's a great fencer. <laughs> and then, and then you proceeded to, to just destroy me in the uh in the third place match so now i see it's really his fault he got me all warmed up you know he uh <laughs> he took me to that that next level up above and i was uh i was pretty much re- i was i was upset and i was ready for anything at that point so <laughs> that was such a hard match i think about it's one of the matches i think about uh, that one and my one with david biggs i think about a lot um that's because they're really good like some of my yeah. favorites so yeah, they really were. And, you know, I mean, like I had like the toughest slot ever because I had to fight David Rowe and then I had to fight you. <laughs> yeah. yeah, actually, uh, David, I've never fought David. I've always wanted to fight him. He's on my he's on my like bucket list of people I want to fence and sword and buckler like all the time. It just never works out. <laughs> his it's it's scary because it's like um, his his proficiency is just like he just doesn't make mistakes. So you really have to work to open him up and, and get something on him. Well, what's cool about David is I feel like he's like, he really enjoys what he does too. Like, I feel like he's always like yeah. super happy when he fences, even when he's like upset. <laughs> I feel like he's like super enjoying the moment. You know? like yeah. I, I've seen him, I've seen him get a little frustrated before and then, but he still like, looks like he's having a good time solving the problem. Of whoever he's so. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, for sure. So, um, tell me a little bit about your martial arts background um, and how you got started in the Bolognese system. Um, so my martial arts background, so like a lot of people, I, like I, I wrestled in high school, which was, uh, which is pretty fun, but I played a lot of sports in high school. So I'm not sure I'd really count that as martial arts, but I think kind of physical activities all contribute to other physical activities. Um, yeah. but after that, I kind of got into Chinese martial arts for a while. And I, uh, I studied some Southern Chinese Kung Fu and then some Northern Chinese Kung Fu and studied some Suai Jiao wrestling for a little while. Um, and even a little Tai Chi for a little while. Um, but, uh, and then I kind of got tired of all that because I, I really wanted to play with swords. Um, and, uh, it was kind of interesting. Actually, I, I, I saw, um, I think I've told this story to a few people, but uh, <laughs> so I kind of found out about HEMA through through the New York Times. They had like a uh, they had like this this article slash video like that happened, and I was like, "What is this? I really want to do this." Um, and then I started like looking around, and there was nothing near me, so I was a little disheartened. Um, but then I uh, I posted on uh, at the time there were some HEMA forums at the time, and I forget what they were called. 
Um, but I had reached out and actually Ben um, responded to me telling me that uh, Eric was moving down to Charlotte and that I should reach out to him. Um, and then poor Eric moved down here and literally like two weeks later, I was bothering him to st <laughs> start up and trying to get him to come to uh, sword fighting with me to go fence a bit. Um, so I, I felt bad. I always felt a little bad about that. He never really got a chance to settle in. It was literally like he got here, he, he got his family here and then boom, we were like, I was like, Hey, let's go do some things. Um, it, was a, it was a good time. Um, and then, so that started, we were doing KDF, um, or like early KDF for about four years. Um, and I had a good time doing that. Uh, but it, I kept having questions about why are we doing some of these things? And it really wasn't answering the questions for me. And then, uh, Right around this time, uh, Ilka started uh, releasing some cool videos and Bolognese stuff. And I was like, oh, I want to do that. Um, and then we kind of went from there. And so I actually looked the other day, realized that I've been doing Bolognese stuff for four years as of like this month or last month. <laughs> so, nice. so I've been doing, I did KDF for four years and I've done Bolognese for four years now. Um, so been... where does that put you? I guess that makes you Swiss. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I'll, I'll take it, you know, I'll... Uh, I'm all right with that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's awesome. <laughs> yep. So, so you, I mean, uh, overall, um, you know, you since you've been studying the Bolognese system for four years, which, you know, in terms of longevity as a Bolognese practitioner is is actually pretty impressive because since you've started for the Bolognese system four years ago you kind of started in like the dark ages of the Bolognese uh you know sort of the development of of what we now see as kind of sources being available and information being out there you know you talked about looking at Ilka videos and I think that's kind of where a lot of us started and it was kind of you know piecing stuff together to try to do Bolognese at the time but as you've kind of progressed through, um, are there any authors or sort of uh, systems that you find yourself more akin to? Yeah, no, um, I, I think uh, we should probably step back from that a little bit um, because I, I don't really feel like four years ago was really the dark ages of Bolognese fencing. I did it first. Like I kind of felt like, oh, this is something new that no one had really touched on. Um, but as I've gotten into it, I've realized that like, there's kind of there's kind of like a, a group a group and a half that was really kind of diving into it even before me, um, you know you've got like uh, like Greg Mele he he's been looking at Bolognese stuff obviously longer than I have Devin Borman has David Biggs as well, um, and uh, I, I didn't even realize that for a long time until I, I had taken some seminars and classes from them um, that like the, the that's kind of a little bit longer um, like I mean even if you look back at the the, the the Manchilino uh, translation, um, you know, Tom was working on that for a long time too, and kind of working through that, um, you know, so there is a little bit of like before, even four years ago, people were like really kind of like kind of starting to dive into this, um, which I think is really cool. There, there were other couple like really awful translations that were floating around also that I feel like someone did a long time ago. There's like a really old Morazzo translation that's mm -hmm. uh, that's not really great, uh, but it was really <laughs> yeah. good at the time. I mean, it, was, it was like the minute, minute the, the new uh, uh, Mr. Swanger translation came out, that thing's was like one of my one of my pride and joys, maybe my most abused book. 
Um, yep. But to answer your actual question, I would say probably identify the most with Delagoki and uh, and probably secondarily Manchilino. Um, I think those two authors really provide the most, I don't know, holistic view of fencing of the period. Yeah. Uh, which is kind of cool. Yeah, I agree with that. Because they kind of take it and condense it down into it's necessary and constituent parts. Like, that's how I feel about them. Like, Morato and Anonimo are very much about the continuation of plays and sort of like developing third, fourth intentions. And Michiolino and Delagoki kind of teach you how to get there, how to start that. Yeah, they, they do a good job of telling you what you can do, right? This is like, if we were, if I define a lot of my, my day by like verbs and nouns, and, and if I were to say it, I would say that they, they do a great job of telling you what is possible. Um, maybe to like a really <laughs> uncomfortable amount of how much they can tell you what to do, just because there's so much volume there. Um, and then yeah. the anonymo, the anonymo is kind of like, like very similar. It is, there's like hundreds of plays in the anonymo, um, and and it's a re that's a really hard text to consume, um, which is why I've kind of been putting it off. It kind of intimidates me <laughs> a little bit. Yeah. But uh, no, I know, <laughs> I know there's some people yeah. working through it. But uh, but what were, you, what were you saying, sir? Oh, no, I was going to say I'm in the same boat. Yeah, I, I started into the Anonimo, and I got like 30 plays in, and then I was like, this is way too much. <laughs> it's, uh, just... Yeah, it's huge. I, I can't. I, I still can't believe that uh, Stephen translated the thing. It's, uh, I know. That thing is truly a labor of love. That, that is it is like one of, that's got to be one <laughs> of the hardest, uh, or maybe one of the longest translations I've seen put out in a long time. This yeah, is it's, so much. It's incredible. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, you were talking a little bit about Manchiolino. Um, and I know just recently you were kind of working on um, going back through um, <laughs> Manchiolino's attacks and defenses, well, sort of, I guess, counters to his attacks um, in the first part and doing that with two handed sword. Um, tell me a little bit about that and what you kind of found as you were exploring that material. Uh, so something I've actually tried to do is both with Manchilino and, and Delagogi is to work through the plays and see like just like all the defenses um, and some of the and some of the other uh, provocation plays um, with weapons besides just a side sword. Um, you know there there is some there is some dialogue in the in the in, in some of the the manuals the books talking about. Uh, how this is a thing, right? Like all this, like if you look at Morazzo, he'll talk about like some of the sword and buckler stuff is good with any weapon. Um, mm. And 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 there's some allusions to that in all the other books if, if it's not explicit. I can't remember if Mancilino calls that out explicitly. I actually think he does, uh, but I, I'd have to go look it up. And I was like, you know, I'm going to try it out. Um, I think between Delagoki and Mancilino, I think Mancilino is probably the most comfortable to do with, uh, with other weapons, like two-handed weapons. Um, and uh, I think Dalagoki comes in a close second. I, I think some of the inverted, uh, like Guardia de Testa with Dalagoki, gets a little bit harder with a two-handed sword. It's just a little less comfortable. Where I think Manchilino doesn't really put you in that position as often. Um, yeah. So to like your first point, I think I think what you're thinking about is in his introduction, he mentions the two-handed sword and says that and there's also like the two-handed sword but i'm not going to cover that here but i think he says something along the lines of like these plays translate you know or you know you can use these basic principles to understand the two-handed sword or something to that degree 
I'm, I might be misremembering that, but but that's, that's I, well, yeah, I think that's the gist, right? I think I think these guys are like presenting literally a like a kind of a gen, and I hate to say it this way because it sounds almost derogatory, but a more generic way of like presenting fencing to someone, right? Yeah, um, yeah. like. And I think that I think they're afforded a lot of benefit by having access, like easier access to like printing, so they can have a lot more words, so things are a little more descriptive, um, and so it, it's kind of cool that they give so much. Um, and and but I also think, like I said, they're a little generic, right? So uh, a lot of their stuff is kind of just, I'm like, I could pick this up with any weapon and do this with <laughs> with anything. But I think that's yeah. kind of the point. I think that's kind of the point, right? These guys ran pretty big schools when you when you get to a certain size of teaching you kind of normalize your curriculum you know <laughs> just to make it easier yeah. On everyone. So. yeah so what does that mean for the anonymo i guess he was probably just like out there studying by himself like lone sword just like traveling around italy just you know messing <laughs> people up <laughs> you know, you writing down the, all of his thoughts the anonymo messes up mostly modern people trying to read that book right? <laughs> I, th I think uh, i think it's a great book uh it's so hard to go through um so, so have you worked with the Anonymo at all, really? You said you worked for the first 30 plays or so? Yeah, I got up to about 30 plays, and then I, I was I kind of backed off. Because I was trying to, you know, like, trying to do them as a form in individual training. Um, mm -hmm. You know, that's really kind of how I started the pandemic. Because we got right. we, we got the, uh, the Anonymo translation from uh, Stephen just, like, right before we didn't, went into lockdown. So, so much of it was kind of trying to develop those interpretations kind of in isolation mm -hmm. i guess i just got bored with it i don't know i really it was really it's it's manchilino's fault i started going through manchilino's sword and large buckler <laughs> stuff and i i fell in love and i was like wow this is this is actually really fascinating um and then i started teaching a class on manchilino's sword and large buckler so i think the sword and large buckler material in both manchilino um and Marazzo is some of the best material on Sword and Buckler, honestly. Um, hands down. Hands down. Like, it's like, <laughs> it's, uh, it takes away all the, like, I think the, the more fun, like, workout kind of plays that you get in the, uh, in the earlier section that kind of is like, hey, this is how we're going to, this is how we're going to fight, fight. You know, yeah. I, yeah, I mean, you're using a sharp sword. I mean, they're they're explicit about the fact that right. you're using a sharp sword and that you're kind of fighting in earnest, or at least fighting with a sense of danger. And so you go from buckler beating and like you know big swooping cuts to everything's super tight and direct. Yeah, not to not to like like so a lot of that's a lot of the stuff in the large buckler also exists in the small buckler but like you said right it, it, a lot of that flourish is like just omitted um which i'm you know i'm sure bothers some people i know some people really like the the flourishy stuff and i go through phases where i'm like really into looking about as fancy as i can be right um <laughs> but uh, you know when, when i'm like when i'm preparing for like like an event i'm like i'm like let's go thumb through the large buckler material and kind of like brush up on this a little bit yeah yeah, so I mean, it's it's kind of interesting. Like, how when you were kind of going through and and developing your interpretations for um, sort of transmitting Machiolino's advice to like longsword and stuff like that. Like, take the um, like the I don't know, like Gordy Alta, for example. So one of the things that I'm actually teaching my students now is all the attacks from Gordy Alta. So a lot of times you'll start with like a falso to the hand or 
well, I mean, I guess he just says a falso. And then he goes in and you proceed with like a mandrito. And then he's got a follow-up play where you faint the mandrito and then cut a reverso. Um, how do you usually kind of take those plays and then sort of sort of transmit them to, to longsword? Um, it, almost exactly like it sounds. <laughs> so, yeah. Right. So like, if you look at the first part, right there, there's really like a couple different ways you can deliver that falso, right? Like if you're in guardi Alta, the sword can travel behind you through Justeza and then come back up. Um, and sometimes that works, right? Yeah. It's the kind of thing you can do when you're kind of, when you're in the wide measure, right? And you're, you're kind of just feeling out your opponent. You can do this action pretty safely. Yeah, it works better with a buckler doing that, the sort of rising fall. So I yeah. think most of the offline guards work better uh, with a buckler, right? Or, or even with an offhand weapon, because that offhand weapon does provide like a little bit of a threat or protection, you know, just whatever it is, right? Um, but uh, there's obviously other ways to throw falsos, right? <laughs> like in my mind, there are anyway, right? You know, you can throw a descending falso um, or even a. Uh, or even more of like a like a Zverkow, like from if you to steal a German term, um, you know, there's there's lots of ways to do this, and and what's interesting is a lot of them work regardless in my mind, right? Um, I feel like those tighter versions, right, like just the like a descending false edge cut or the Zverkow cuts tend to work a lot better when you're closer to someone. Um, like if I am closer, if someone starts to encroach on me, um, swinging back behind me to get the falso, like is just a much larger tempo that I'm I'm generally not wanting to expose. Um, but when I relay this to my students, I try to be really honest about it. Honestly, you know, I, I I say this, I I say like, you know, sometimes when you're far away, you can get away with one, and when we get closer, you can kind of get away with another. Now, as to the actual intent, I I honestly have no answer for that because they're not quite that descriptive. Um, but when I when I relay this information to my students, I kind of tell them to just be be as honest as they can be with their interpretations. You know, um, understand that there are differences and and there are benefits to both because we don't have those details, right? Um, I'm I'm honestly not too sure that they like if I were talking to the masters, they would care too much either. <laughs> I feel like I feel like I feel like a lot of you know a lot of that stuff is kind of more basic fencing. Um, and I, I feel like their obsession with, you know, controlling that wide and narrow measure and, and, and understanding how to behave in both is, is really important to them in general. So, yeah, yeah, no, I, I agree with that. So, you know, kind of taking the plays, trying to suss out the, the, the lesson and try to understand things more from the context of, you know, what's the purpose of, of a specific action and its context. So like, you know, for Manchiolino in particular, thinking, okay, if you're going to enter with a falso, it's probably going to be to a shallow target, followed by your Mandrito, which is a feint based on how your opponent parries, and then your Reverso, if they do parry, right? Kind of just thinking about that from context, linearly working in on your opponent. It, it, that's exactly it, right? Like, I, I think you're, you know, when, when we think about weapons and their use, right? Like, rarely in history does someone build, like, some generic weapon. Like, all weapons kind of have their purpose and their niche. And, and I think a lot of these abilities and, and techniques that they describe literally have their use and their purpose. Like, this is what this is for. Um, and you just have to kind of, like, you know, suss out, like, the right one for the right moment. But I think that's kind of 
all fencing, you know, especially when you're doing interpretation, you know, fencing. Um, and, and while the Balinese are really good about this, um, they're not perfect. Uh, they're definitely better than the earlier sources, but they're not nearly as explicit as they are in like later rapier sources, for example. Um, yeah, that's true. So, I mean, one of the things that you you brought up earlier when you were talking about the KDF sources is how you were kind of questioning, you know, like you were looking at the system and like, hey, there's something missing here. Um, and I know that we've had conversations in the past about this, but talking about how in KDF sources, it almost feels like the zoofectin isn't addressed yet. The zoofectin kind of represents the larga plays and the wide play that is prevalent throughout most of the Italian sources. Um, is that kind of what you were getting at when you were saying that you kind of felt like you were missing something? I think there's a few things missing in earlier sources. I, and I don't know if they, you know, I, and I, I hesitate to offer an answer because I don't think there is an answer. Um, gotcha. I, think it's, I think it's one of those things where I guarantee you they had opinions on it. Like whoever wrote those sources, whichever source you look at, I guarantee you they had opinions on it. Um, like just because people who fence always have opinions on these things, right? <laughs> but they don't write it down. So it's it's either a mission by it's intentional omission, right? The like they that wasn't what they were focusing on, right? Either they assumed you had some prior knowledge, or they omitted this because they didn't want you to do it. Um, but for me, I was more interested in that kind of generic, I, I hate to call it generic, um, but if it's kind of like if, if, if what they're trying to do in earlier KDF is provide um, material on, here is something beyond the mundane, right? This is, this is how, these are the extra, this is the extra special sauce that we're gonna give you to make you all the more awesome. But I, I was really more curious at the time. I was like, well, I don't care about that stuff as much. I cared, I started caring more about, well, what is what is the basics recipe for all these, for all this fencing? Um, and that's, that's kind of how I got in the Balinese. And as I've gone through the Balinese, I find more and more of those kind of um, early KDF lessons are just kind of a part of the sources or just not as explicit. Um, I, I do feel like the earlier KDF sources are really, really good about teaching you when to do things. Um, they're really bad at teaching you what to do, but they're really good at teaching you when to do things. Um, they, they're, they're descriptions of, of like like pressure and fulden, um, vor and knock. I think are really good descriptive values for like trying to offer guidance on 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 when to do something. Um, I, like I said, I, the the Balinese sources are really good at telling you what you can do, right? <laughs> like the the Balinese yeah. are like, here's a recipe and here are all the techniques to create this dish. Um, <laughs> and, and and then the the KDF sources are more like, and here's where we can add an extra dash of salt and and you know <laughs> this is like this little things like that you know and uh, when should we serve this dish you know that's what they care about. Um, yeah, well you know like in, to that point, I've always said like I feel like the word endes is absolutely brilliant in its simplicity, but also its ability and I guess that's just a German thing, but also in its ability to communicate so many different ideas in one word. Yeah, it, it's really great. I mean, let's, I mean, if you look about like the, <laughs> like if we assume that in means like at the same time, 
right? Which I think a lot of people kind of assume this. I'm sure someone else has some other interpretation of this. I don't, I don't want to tell them that they're right or wrong. Um, if you compare this to like later Italian terminology, it's like, wow, that is a lot more words to express the same idea, guys. Um, <laughs> yeah. So, you know. Well, I, I mean, you could take it and, I mean, I always, there were a couple of different times. I've, I've played around with designing a class around, uh, for KDF students around the word indes but using tempos and ideas of tempos from Bolognese and rapier sources. And just where I feel like sometimes like the word indes is, can be trans, almost give this mysterious atmosphere to it where um, people are kind of wary of coming to it and trying to really kind of understand it. Um, trying to fill that in for people and say, hey, listen, here, take Dalagokie's five tempos and throw Indes in at any moment, he says, in the moment of, or in, you know, when you've done X, you know, you could throw Indes in there and you would have literally all of the tempos and then you pull it back out and you realize that if you just say Indes in the moment that they do something, in the moment they take a step, in the moment that you make a parry, in the moment that they chamber their cut, like those are all your tempos of attack and you think of that and sort of pull that out you can sort of separate it and then condense it back down into that single word and it's brilliant yeah it's really good it's actually uh it's funny you say this i've, I've actually so uh, uh i just went to rasp uh this year for the first time um and, and one of part of rasp is like learning about pedagogy and how to teach things right it's literally like the whole purpose of it and they do a pretty good job of being like source agnostic for you um which is good um but one of the things i really realize is they do a really good job of how to teach that kind of material like from a from a coaching perspective um just with setting up the invitations for attacks like how do you present that information to students and show how to deliver that kind of timing because um, some of them are pretty hard right like like hitting someone when you're like watching their foot lift you know is kind of i i hesitate to say impossible but it's on the harder level of like doing things right yeah. it's more like you're generally looking more i think like at their body entirely and wondering if they're coming closer to you or farther away from you more than you are staring at their foot now you can stare at their foot obviously when you're farther away Right. Um, and, and maybe maybe if you're six, five and you have an excellent lunge that that works for you. Um, <laughs> but for everybody else, you know, the rest of us mere mortals who are a little bit shorter than that. Um, like generally, we're going to if I'm looking at their foot too close, I'm probably ignoring something else that I really should be wary of. Right. Um, like their sword. Yeah. Like their sword <laughs> thrusting into my chest or shoulder or something. Yes. Yeah. Makes it, uh, yeah. makes it hard. Um, and then uh, I, one other thing I, I, f I found out, um, uh, have you ever met Puck Curtis? He does, uh, he's like a really big Justreza guy. Uh, I haven't, no. He, uh, he was talking, I was talking to him at, at RASP actually. He's one of the uh, the, uh, the fencing coaches there. Um, and uh, there's a source I think he felt, I think he said it was Ettenhard. Um, and he has this like, Ettenhard has this really weird play where you basically have someone give you this really big swing like cut and you're supposed to attack him like within the middle of that swing. Um, and for a long time, he was like, why would anybody teach you to do this attack? Like you're, you're never going to win this. Um, but you know, we started talking about this idea of presenting these big attacks and teaching people to attack you within these big attacks. And then as people get better, those attacks get smaller and smaller and you teach them to attack you within these smaller tempo, right? That, that hand moving in preparation for a cut. 
right? Which is one of the which is one of the tempos. But uh, yeah, this is actually this has actually been on my head a lot lately. I've, I've been really trying to figure out how to teach these better, and and, and I hesitate. I don't hesitate to say, it, but I, I think uh, I think a lot of later period sources, uh, especially once you start hitting into the like the classical fencing era, uh, I get really good at teaching this kind of material. Totally like a, like a little bit different context and and a little bit different weaponry. Um, but uh, really does a good job of, of I think, developing that. Something I, something I'm trying to uh, convince Eric to to try. I think we're going to give it a shot. See how it goes with uh, teaching people some of these things a little bit better. So we'll see how that goes. You you can come fence us and let and let us know how we're doing. <laughs> yeah yeah yeah. I'd love to. Yeah I mean I I, I should come down there. I mean if if things are. It has been a while. It's been too long, man. Yeah. It's been too long. But um. Or you guys can come up for October Fact. I, you know, Eric's teaching up there, um, and then I wasn't originally planning on going, but uh, I may have just freed up my schedule to go. We will see. Perfect. My uh, my anniversary is like right around that time, so I, uh, uh, yeah. I try to. Uh, I would like to celebrate that too. So we'll see if, we'll see if <laughs> I can have my cake and eat it too. We'll see if yeah, I can do priorities, both. right? <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, no, so. I, I mean, you brought up something really interesting because I've always felt like the later sources. You know, I, and I, I think this is a consequence of just having the printing press, right? Like you have more space to communicate an idea. Um, and I mean, thinking about KDF in particular, kind of going back to how we got to this, like you're talking about a poem that people are basically writing down their thoughts about. And the poem is supposed to convey all of these ideas condensed down into stanzas or phrases or words that are memorable. And that's where I think there's a little bit of brilliance, but I think to really kind of understand that, you do have to kind of look at the later sources and, and the ideas of later sources. I mean, I know like when Chris was developing our curriculum, we were really looking at tempo and trying to understand tempo. Um, he started with the Bolognese sources and then started looking at things like, I think he really kind of settled on Capofero and Capofero's understanding of, of tempo. Um, and that's primarily what we use. Um, yeah, Capofero's great for that, right? He's kind of... Yeah, he's... Like, if he we really ignore, if we ignore, it like, if we ignore Giganti, because he's kind of, I think Giganti's kind of, I don't want to call him the weirdo of the group, but he's definitely like the less cool fencer if you look at like Giganti, Capofero, into Fibris. Right, I, I definitely think Giganti is the weaker one of those masters, right? Uh, and yeah. I, I think I think there's some mockery too by later masters about him as well, you know. But uh, um, I, I really like how Capoferra starts to describe that. I think he does a good job of that. Well, and for for Giganti in particular, he's also like almost deliberately keeping things simple, like sort of the way you know we were just talking about with uh, you know, somebody like. Uh, Dalagoki and, and Manchilino, you know, it's like they deliberately kind of kept things relatively simple. So that way it was easier to teach. And I think that, you know, maybe there's a reason why he did it that way. Um, especially since he comes from a military background, doesn't he? Wasn't he involved in? Yeah, I think, uh, I think Giganti, like that? I think Giganti was, you'd have to ask, you'd have to ask uh, someone who's a little more expert on it than I am. I'm only yeah. just familiar with the, that he was. <laughs> So he's, but he does have that great picture where he's posing in the front, though. So he looks yeah. he definitely, he definitely looks like a, he definitely looks like that's like a, a strict instructor. <laughs> but uh, but does, yeah, yeah, no, I, I I agree. I feel like he's definitely presenting, 
trying to present material more simply. Um, whether whether <laughs> he may not have a choice in that matter. I I don't know what his actual like accolades are as far as fencing is concerned, or you know what people then thought of him, for example. You know, I just don't know. Um, yeah, so, so I'm sure someone does. Someone who yeah, no, no, yeah, they're like <laughs> that's not yeah. I'm I've always been a uh, a bull and ace guy, so um, you know I, I I dabble every once in a while in the rapier sources, but um, you know even when I fight with a rapier, I I pretty much just do sides for stuff. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, and, and I don't I don't know how I don't know how awful that is. I I don't know how I don't think that's a bad idea, right? No, um, I mean, and it like, it works. Yeah. So. Yeah, I don't know. People just get a little weird when I start like beating their sword. <laughs> <laughs> beat, well, it's not. It's not just the beat. It's 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 the way in which we beat the sword. It's probably <laughs> a little more aggressive than is necessary. Uh, um, but, you know, I mean, if you think about it, you know what we would consider a side sword and what we consider a rapier were like contemporaneous, right? It's it's not like th like everyone just got rid of their side swords one day and we're like, oh, we only have rapiers now. Um, yeah. You know they, they existed side by side for a very long time. Um, yes, they did. And and well, even shorter rapiers existed for a very long time. Um, like we, I, I the sources that are much later that talk about like the nobility of the shorter rapier. You know, and I'm like, man, that just sounds like a side sword to me, buddy. Um, so, <laughs> <laughs> well, maybe they were the holdouts. They were just like, were, yeah, this, this weapon is so much cooler. <laughs> I don't know. I mean, so. Lately, I've been looking a lot at Palladini. I've really kind of been working through, um, and he's pretty interesting because, like, he does so many. Like, he is not simple by any means. Like, you come in from each of the guards, and you pretty much find your opponent's sword, pressure their sword to the, the to get like generate the tempo of them doing his falsata. Like, you're you're trying to force his falsata from all four of the principal guards, the Roman guards in order to do some sort of a crazy like void and thrust like it's pretty intense like I, I just like i haven't looked at many of the other rapier sources so i don't know if this is something that's common in them um and so i might be speaking from a place of arrogance here since this is really the only like true rapier source i've ever really studied um but i mean so much of it is like they you know some of the place for example like um it's like you come to the inside, you bind heavy on your opponent's sword to force them to do his falsata because they have nothing else to do. Um, and as they do that, you just drop underneath and stab them in the armpit. Yeah, you were you were talking about this earlier. Uh, you, you you when you messaged me earlier, I was uh, I was like, what play is he talking about? So I had to go pull out my book and go look it up. Uh, oh yeah, so I was I was talking about the one where and this one engaged. is like super fascinating, right? So like Terza against Terza. Um, okay basic bolognese like set up for this play you go in you're in terza and his terza is pretty much cotolonga strata right so you're right foot forward you're in cotolonga strata but you're just kind of leaning back um you beat to your opponent's sword and faint a thrust and as they go to parry that thrust um after you've beat their sword um then you drop underneath their sword i usually do it with a, a bit of a lean back and then come back with the false edge over top of their sword and just wind up into a Punta Drita or into Prima in this case and thrust them. And, um, you know, I mean, that's that's like classic Bolognese, right? Like Manchilino does that with a single sword and so does Marazzo. So 
And, and you see this exact play or some variation like persist probably until the 1800s. Right? Yeah, like, and so like it, it's it's just like it's not that rapier is and side swords are different. Like, like if we, if we, and I'm gonna, I'm gonna preface that by saying, if I think about the three Balinese masters, that's what I'm saying is side sword. If I talk about those sources, and I compare them to later rapier, like a lot of the stuff in later rapier sources is just kind of a subset of what the Balinese sources have. It's just a distilled version of it, in my opinion. Right? Yeah, oh, it's yeah. like it's it's a very focused, it's a very like hi, it's a very hyper focused version of like a slice of what the Bolognese sources contained. Um, but yeah, th th those plays are beautiful. Like, uh, especially when you see someone who can really fence rapier very well and you see them execute stuff like that, it's a, it's a, it's a different view of a play that we're very used to seeing, right? Like you see a lot in Bolognese stuff, that, that provocation, that engagement, that, you know, that imbricata, like, like it's just like the really yeah. standard thing in ball. It's like, it's like maybe the Bolognese play, do something, stab them with an imbricata, you know, uh, yep. yeah. and, and go from there. <laughs> um, so the cool thing about that play is the counter though, because like the counter is super sick because essentially your opponent having gone to parry the thrust after the beat, um, you know, they've got their sword in a position. Now that you're coming over the back of their sword at the false edge. And then as you wind up and to do that Punta Drita, all they do is just push their sword forward in um, Gordia de Faccia, and it'll just completely collapse your the, the offensive <laughs> person's structure. That's and nice. it, it, yeah, and it's crazy because usually you think about countering a thrust like that, and you're going to think that you're going to turn your palm down and go into a Punta Drita or something like that. But here he's got his palm up. And he's just literally just kind of throwing his flat across and it's his flat that's dominating the line. Um, no, that's interesting. Yeah. It's pretty trippy. Um, it's trippy because it doesn't, you don't think that it's going to work until you do it. And you're just like, Holy crap, this is amazing. I will say that one of the primary like Balinese defenses of when things are going poorly, is it just go to guardian defense? And like, you know, like I, I'm in trouble. Guardian defense. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah yeah i mean i think so my very first day of teaching because a lot of the people that i have for my my sword and buckler class are i like kdf folks that were interested in doing sword and buckler so when the when the very first day i was like all right now if we ever cut a reverso just assume that as we're exiting the play, you're going to go into Gordia Faccia to cover your face. <laughs> yeah, that's a, that's perfect. That actually works so well. You know, yeah. it's, just, it's it's a it's it's literally the greatest like oh shit maneuver like in all of everything <laughs> that I've encountered. Just stick your arm out and uh, hope for the best. You know, at this point, you know, if you're if you're in that kind of trouble, <laughs> it I, is. I feel, it, it is which, really the default oh shit for Bolognese fencing though, because you even think about it like. I mean, it's a counter to if somebody raises their sword up in Alta, even if you're fighting with a two-handed sword and uh, you want to counter that, you might come forward with Gordia de Faccia, you know, if somebody's kind of giving you that high cut. I, I like to I like to jokingly make the idea in my head that that it was so successful that the, the Spanish just literally saw this and they designed their entire method of fencing around this one idea. <laughs> They're just like, Gordia Fetch is so amazing, we're literally just going to design a style of fencing uh, and that's all we're going to allow people to learn going forward, just fighting from this particular guard. I, I just, uh, someone, someone's going to listen to this, going to listen to this recording, and uh, they're going to give me a hard time about that later. I know it. 
Someone in this friend is going to give you a hard time later. I'm okay. I'll, I'll have that. I'll have that argument with him then. Yeah. Look, look. I mean, this it, it's not it's not it's not a Leonardo del Arme podcast without me ruffling somebody's feathers. So I I appreciate I appreciate you shouldering the burden for me on this one. We can uh, we can ruffle all sorts of feathers here. You know, I. Uh, I unfortunately read a lot of sources that aren't Bolognese too, just so I can have arguments with people of another uh, in other disciplines, you know. So. Yeah, so actually, let's let's rustle a couple of feathers because, <laughs> um, <laughs> I mean, I know, uh, I mean, look, I've I've kind of been on this this journey of trying to think, okay, um, if I'm looking at Maratto's two-handed sword section and I'm trying to understand it from their perspective. I think my perspective historically has always been that, um, you know, it's okay to look at the German sources and kind of get inspiration from them to try to understand what's going on in, in Bolognese two-handed sword. Um, I know arguments that I had made in the past um, were a lot of times around the fact that there were German mercenaries throughout Italy, starting from, you know, the 1300s and they didn't really stop so you know what's to say that you know, there weren't ideas of this concept of these actions like persisting throughout um and i that aside i mean that's that was generally my understanding of everything but um i know that for you in the way that you kind of interpret um Maranzo's two-handed sword you do a lot of the the falsos um, as descending cuts. So um, explain that to me and sort of g give me a reason for why I'm, I'm wrong to go down this path and, and try to think of these things from this crazy perspective. I, I think the simple answer is, is that there's no actual answer. Um, and so I, I, I'm of the opinion that you should try them all and see which one you think makes the most sense within that particular context of that play. Right, because you know, if if we assume then if we assume that the falso is always ascending, right, then great, that's the position you take. Um, but the minute you cross that line and think like like you know, maybe this falso is like a zverkow, that that opens your mind up to the idea that well maybe this falso is also descending, right, or maybe it's actually descending and it's not you know, Squalombrato, it's, it's like more of a fendente, right? And you're like, oh my gosh, I'm, I'm really going into weirdo German land now, you know? Um, not that, not that Germans are weird. Um, just that <laughs> we, we've crossed this line from like, what I, I think of is more the conventional, what people generally conventionally think the Bolognese do versus um, the reality that combat is an ever evolving metagame for pretty much all of history, right? Like, like I, you even see this looking at Meyer. You know, Meyer's literally taking like early KDF and Mediterranean fencing styles and kind of creating a whole new thing out of it. You know, um, and and writing about it in a really different way. Um, I I I don't think he cared as much. I, I feel like Meyer would be like, cool, whatever. You know, like let's do the ascending falso. Let's do the descending falso. It's all cool. Um, and I don't know. I, I don't know if we have answers really for. Um, his, his more Mediterranean contemporaries in this regard, right? Like, I don't know if Morazzo would care. Um, I, I know there are plays that feel like they could be more descending or they could be more horizontal, right? As far as how fa falsos are delivered. Um, 
and, and we see this all over the place, right? Um, especially in the stuff where Morazzo is really poorly describing something, which is most of that book, right? <laughs> um, so, and, and all we can do is is interpret and try. Um, I, you know, when you have things that aren't very explicit, that's my approach. Um, can you cut with it? Can you drill with it? Can you spar with it? Like that's it. Those three things. If you can answer those three questions, then it's probably not a bad interpretation. Uh, maybe one's better than the other for some context, and maybe you haven't quite figured that out what that context is yet. But uh, you know, definitely, like I, I, that's why I like to approach it. Um, you know, that was very. It's always been my approach. That's always been our approach here at, at Swordwind to these kind of things. Can you cut with it? Can you drill with it? Can you spar with it? Yeah, and, and I mean, you've you've successfully uh, sparred with most of these things. Um, I've I've watched you fight and just you know. <laughs> <laughs> most of the time it's like yolo let's try this out you know let me see, let me see what happens you know it's like it's, it's in the book you know i might as well i might as well try this in a tournament you know that's what pools are for you know yeah exactly but i, I mean sh I, sh I shouldn't say that out loud i i treat pools seriously these days but uh like when i'm going through interpretive phases i, I tend to treat my pools as like testing grounds of really non-compliant people for me to try out my interpretations on so i, I think that's i don't think that's a bad thing i think that's important some people, some people are going to be way more competitive um, about these things, and I'm just, I'm just not. When it comes to pools, I'm not as competitively minded about it. Um, right. So. so, I mean, have you been able to do a lot of this stuff in cutting? Because I know you guys cut all the time. Yeah. Well, we've been cutting time. less because the uh, well, it's COVID. The great tatami and, shortage. And then there's a great tatami shortage, which has been awful. <laughs> But what people don't know is I have a giant stash of tatami in my garage that I've been using on my free time. <laughs> and uh, but no one come to my garage and steal that stuff because it's really hard to get a hold of. You're very upset. Uh, yeah, seriously, it's my, like gold steal, now. <laughs> come steal my tatami. I'm gonna be a little disappointed. <laughs> um, yeah, and, and you know we were cutting that. We were you know some of these like descending you know. Uh, short edge cuts to go into German land hit a, a bit uh, work perfectly fine. Like we never had issues with these. Um, uh, and, and then, uh, you know, just continuing along that same kind of line of thinking with some of the, I don't want to say uniquely Bolognese because I feel like they're not terribly unique. Um, uh, they all kind of work. I can cut with all of them. I've been able to create drills and I you know a lot of them a lot of these weirder like angles on falso um I've been able to pull off in competition as well so I yeah. I, I, I have a hard time saying anything is the way in fact I'm really scared of people who try to say something is the way because I feel like the minute someone says something is the way then they've closed their mind to the possibility that they're wrong so uh, yeah, yeah. Uh, I don't feel like that's healthy I never feel like it's healthy for everyone to say like they figured it out because I, I doubt it um so. <laughs> No, that's, I mean, that's, that's great advice. That's, I mean, that's kind of the, the reason for going through this exploration now, because I think I started into, um, in particular, I started working through the second assault of the two-handed sword. And I was just kind of, you, you know how in the second assault, it becomes, it's like Morazzo's writing gets like catastrophically worse. <laughs> it does, but then it gets catastrophically better. It yeah, and I, well, I, I said that intentionally that way. <laughs> but the, uh, end yeah. of, the end of the second assault is just literally like a mind melt. I, I feel like um, uh, the second assault tenth chapter is 
literally all you need to know from the second assault. Um, I feel like he actually meant that to be some like weird like 2.5 assault or even like a third assault. And you're just like, nah, we'll just cram it into this last one at the end here. Uh, <laughs> because all that's all those entries in, uh, I'll call it 2-10, um, describe how the rest of the second assault is kind of supposed to be executed in my mind. Um, 2-10 two, two is literally... In, in my mind, like what I think Moranza was like, this is how to fight with a two-handed sword. You do an inverted thrust over the top, you cut from below, you grapple. Or, you know, you go to Guardia Dintrare, you gain that overbind as you thrust over the top of their sword with a pass of your right foot, and then you do something. Um, and I feel like I've really been diving into this a lot. 2-10 has really been influential on my long sword fencing lately. Um, that's awesome i feel like yeah, I, 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 it's, it's like the first assault and then two dash ten and that's really been like my, my bread and butter <laughs> lately. So. yeah well i mean there's really good tactical advice in the third and in, in the third assault i, I guess sure. or the guard section of the third assault there's all sorts of hidden advice kind of through there like i don't want to call it, maybe hidden is not the best word uh, less than advertised parts of the of that of that part of the book there's a bunch of like cool little tidbits of fencing advice there's yeah. i think there's actually some allusions to like marazzo having a counter guard system um like you're supposed to be in this guard when your opponent's in this other guard he kind of talks about this a little bit um so okay so i actually speaking of that this is just a little nugget i i all right i'll bring that up later we'll we'll talk about that <laughs> later let's keep talking about the two minutes i don't want to get okay. distracted here yeah. all right yeah so that that's really fascinating so you're saying two two dot ten because I feel like two dot seven, eight, nine are the ones that are just like Ooh, nine's hot beautiful. garbage. If you, if you can get nine down, it's a it, like if you can get eight and nine down, they're really beautiful if you execute them well, and they feel super fantastic. Um, yeah. But they feel more like a flow drill than they are like we're trying to teach you something here. Um, right. Because seven like, isn't seven the one where you end up going and he's got the three different uh press a techniques essentially like you've got the one where you come in with a half sword and then or is that earlier is that number six i don't remember i'd have to go look at that i'd have yeah, to pull my notes i do kind of have them in front of me here he's a 2-7 yeah. i've got all my interpretation notes in for me no you can't have them no, i'm just kidding <laughs> <laughs> <Sure>. um <laughs> Yeah, yeah, so he kind of talks about in this one some of the same entering stuff that's in 210. Like a lot, some of that stuff's in there. Um, that's like entering into Guardian Intrare and Chingiali Porta de Ferro, which I think yeah. Marazzo really likes using as your transitionary step from, from Gioca Larga to Gioca Stretta. Um, those two guards, very specifically, I think, in the two handed sword, Marazzo thinks is the cool thing to do when you want to get close to someone. Um, <laughs> Which makes sense, right? You know, if you're, if if your default position in Marazzo is a Porta de Ferro guard, which which a lot of times it is with a two-handed weapon, regardless of the source you follow, right? right. Um, I, I would say the earlier German sources favor, um, like Kotalunga Alta kind of position or, or uh, right, right, uh, right plow, right? Um, like. There's that, but like Marazzo really favors his Porta de Ferro position, I think, 
specifically in the first assault. You're almost always in that guard when you start out, or you transition into that guard at some point before you execute your action. Um, if that's the guard you start out in, right? That, if that's where you're supposed to be when you're far away. And if we also make the assumption that Maratza really likes passing steps, which people who do like sources that are longsword based generally really favor passing steps, mm-hmm. um, then Guardian Intrari and Wide Step um, and then Chingali Porta de Ferro um, are both really how you how you would move with that you know with that passing step. I have my right foot forward. I got to put my left foot forward. Now I got to put my right foot forward again, right? And and that and that in between stage is you know Guardian Intrari and Chingali Porta de Ferro. I don't know where I was going with that, but that was just on yeah, my that's, mind. That's <laughs> but uh, so, he talks about that a well, lot. In the, in the second, so. It's interesting though, because like he also in the in the third in the guard section, he talks about, um, and I, I keep bringing this up, but um, he talks about how like you don't actually want to be in um, Gordier de Testa against somebody who's in Porta de Ferro. Like he says that you would want to go into Gordier de Testa if you're fighting somebody who's in Cotolonga Alta, Strata, or like Cotolonga Larga. Um, and so one of the guards, so it makes sense that he's using the, the feint, the falaciari of the false home puntanto to sort of get the person who's in Porta de Ferro out of the guard. And, and look um, at that transition right there, right? You pass your left foot forward. If you look at the assault, the first assault chapter one, right? Mm-hmm. You, you, you give, you give that false home puntanto out of pass of the left foot. Again, it's just, like literally the first chapter of the first assault is let's do a passing step with a cover um, and then get that provocation for another attack after it. Like he, right there, he's kind of telling you, I think this is what I want to do, guys. This is where we're going. <laughs> <laughs> Strap in because it's about to get weird. But <laughs> just giving you a heads up now. This is where we're going. Yep. Yeah, because he doesn't so, do a lot of that in the rest of the first assault. There's not a lot of this passing step on the on the first action. It doesn't really happen. Um, but it's interesting you talk about that guard because in his counter guards, there's kind of a rule behind it. And I don't know if you if you've realized it yet. Uh, but whatever side your opponent's sword is on, like if their right foot forward is forward, then your left foot is back, and you're in one of those guards. And then you want to be in a guard where your sword is higher than theirs. Yes. Okay. All right. So I am. I'm gonna. I'm going to take us off on a rabbit hole here. Okay. All right. I'm, I've strapped in. Uh, I unfortunately don't have any wine, but I do have a, I, do have a, <laughs> I, I can put a helmet on. I don't know where it is. <laughs> All right. So um, I was, I've been, one of the things that I've been trying to do is um, take Manchialino's attacks and the counters um, and plug it into Marazzo's middle chapter of, um, of chapter two, right? Or book two. Um, where he goes through all of the guards and then tells you to essentially learn how to attack and defend against from all the guards, right? So I'm just taking Manchialino's advice and then plugging it in there. So when I was going back through and I was looking at those plays in, um, I think it's uh, Becca Poza, it's either Becca Poza or Becca Seza. He actually gives a list of actions that are his ideas for counter guards. Yep, that's, so that's literally says, where I'm pulling this from. So. Okay, all right, yeah. So if, you're, if your opponent is in Cotolonga de Steza, he says to assume Becca Seza. And then if your enemy is in Porta de Ferro, he says to assume Becca Poza. And then if, you're in Cotolonga, if they're in Cotolonga Larga, you assume, assume Cotolonga Strata. If, you're, if they're in Becca Seza, you assume Chinkiari Porta de Ferro. And then if they're in Gordia de Entrari, you go into Gordia Alta. Yep. 
Right. And so, yeah, no, I've, I've been playing with that a lot. I've actually, so a lot of the sparring that I've been doing lately, um, I've just been trying to follow this advice and play around with different actions of, of like what these things sort of produce. Um, Cause it is really interesting advice. I mean, the, I, some of them are pretty straightforward, right? Like Becca Pose against Porta de Ferro. I mean, that's just like literally setting up an, an empercata. Like it's just like, it's begging for it. Right. Well, and you're setting yourself up really well right like your swords above theirs kind of right you know yeah so you you have you have that that natural gravity on your side you know to kind of yeah i don't have to do much i literally have to just let my sword fall on the ground and i <laughs> yeah. and I'm, I'm kind of safe and then i'm keeping that side away from you you know um just to make that easier so i can do a passing step with it and take that angle you know or or retreat back easier kind of thing and still be safe yeah I love that whole yeah. section. It's so it's so uh, it's so underread. I think. Oh yeah, I agree. He gives some pretty good nuggets in there, and that's why I was I was really interested to take something that was also from the Bolognese system and fill out the other information to see if you know it would even unlock some of that advice a little bit more. See if there was any more you know richer information there that I might be missing from just passing through and having him say you know, learn how to do these things without actually telling you how to do them because he's Marazzo. <laughs> well, yeah, exactly. Well, so if you really read through Marazzo, though, he does kind of have like a pedagogy framework, right? I don't know if you've ever, I've ever shared that with you. Um, where he kind of talks about like the order in which you should learn things. Mm-hmm. It doesn't really go further than that. So it's not super, it's like, I don't think, I don't think you could design your curriculum based off of this, right? Not for each action. Um but he and Dalagoki share almost an identical, like a high level framework for how to teach people things. Um, and, and, and one of those things is learn the defenses, right? So like the first step is like, know the true edge and false edge of the sword. The second part is learn the basic offensive action. So like all the cuts and stabs and thrusts and whatnot, then, you know, learn the basic after that is learn all the basic defenses. And he doesn't really go into the defenses too much, but I assume, like, like I, I assume that Marazzo had a, another book somewhere that was like, "This is my; these are all my techniques for defending from guards." I, I, I say that jokingly. I don't know if he really did or not, but you know, <laughs> what what we've been doing is like I teach in this order, but then I either reference plays from Manchilino or Delagoki for that particular guard, and just do it with a longsword, and it works out really well. Um, so you want to learn how to fight from Kotalunga straight to with a longsword? Like you can do that. You know, yeah. the, no one fights from that guard. It's super powerful, though. It is maybe it's maybe one of the the stronger guards. There's your there's your there's your secret technique. Fight from the longest straight. To, <laughs> keep your right leg forward and put move your sword to the right. Um, so. <laughs> there, there's a, there's some fun stuff that can happen there. Um, but yeah, no, that's great. So how that's been working? So you've been teaching this like as has uh, been working well for you guys. Um, well, I'm I'm still working on on building uh-huh. out this curriculum. Yeah, so I, I mean, I've just been teaching Manchilino's sword and large buckler, and then the attacks and the defenses from like his uh, Manchilino's attacks and, and counters, um, and that's that's been going pretty good. I mean, that's people seem to pick up on it pretty pretty well. I'm I'm amazed sometimes at how many times because I am working with primarily KDF students. How many times I'm like. Oh, you know what this is? Uh, 
this is a Duplirin or, you know, like <laughs> this is, this is Zukin. I mean, yeah, like, there you go. <laughs> it's just like flat out and they, they know exactly what to do. And I, you know, I don't have to explain any further than that. So. Yeah. I find a lot of the guys who do uh like, and I'll, I, like, I'll just broadly say German longsword pick up everything really well, except footwork. Yeah. Um, because the Balinese really have specific footwork that they kind of work in. And I, I, whenever I teach someone who comes from like a German background, I always have to spend a lot of extra time teaching them that it's okay to cut over your, uh, <laughs> your other leg. It depends on how dogmatic you are about that stuff. I, I know a lot of the better fencers kind of are just like, whatever, you know, they, they kind of do whatever makes sense because they've been doing it a long time. Um, but people who've been like really dogmatic about following that, like, you know, cut with your right step with your right kind of format really yeah. really struggle when i say step with your left cut from your right or cut from your right step with your left you know kind of thing um it cracks yeah. me up a little bit <laughs> but, yeah uh, it, it it is a little challenging i mean that's well, that's that has been my biggest struggle is teaching them footwork but you know mitch Felino is so like deliberate with his explanations of his footwork in the sword and large buckler material that it makes communicating it a little bit easier because i can just we can read through the play and i mean a lot of times it kind of makes sense right like when you do that trailing back foot because he does that that sort of um you know compass step where you've got that trailing back foot all the time after you've yep. done an, an action a lot of times that pulls your sword away and sets up for a really nice slice so like say you do a reverso to somebody's arm or something like that, and then you you pull that back leg away and it, you're just pulling your sword back across whatever target you've just kind of cut into and just finishing with a nice slice. I love that stuff too. I, I really love, uh, I really like circular footwork like styles of fencing um, and they're not super common, right? Um, like they, they do exist to some regard, but like they, they kind of get really overshadowed by outside of Spanish traditions, they get really overshadowed by more linear, more linear footwork, I would say. Um, not that people who fence like rapier were like strictly linear, right? But they tend to be less and less linear as time goes on. Um, other than the Spanish, you, who take that whole circular footwork to some bonkers level, right? Um, <laughs> like, it's in a beautiful way, right? In a, in a very beautiful way. Um, they take yeah. it to a very extreme kind of way of thinking. Um, yeah, you're gonna walk around a circle until literally your point just kind of like happens to be in your opponent. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Sure, that's pretty much it. Uh, that's what it looks like anyway. Um, the guys I do this present with, are, the guys I do this present with, are gonna give me a hard time for saying that though. I know it already. <laughs> I know, I know, it's more complicated than that. I'm, I'm just, <laughs> I'm giving you a hard time. No, I know. I mean, we're, I think we're losing Stephen right now to becoming a distress artist with his, uh, his, um, Stringeri interpretations because he's he's getting really distressed right now but i don't think he's wrong i you know i mean it's interesting because like what he's doing actually translates really well into what i've been reading in paladini where you're really kind of forcing your, your opponent to like one potential option and that's just to do his falsata I, i'm gonna i'm gonna i'm gonna steal something i think it's marcelli who says this who basically says you know, the Spanish didn't invent anything new. They just were reinventing what the Italians had already figured out, right? <laughs> um, I, I think it's Marcelli. It's I think it's Marcelli who says this, um, and, and and he's kind of right. You know, I think in a lot of ways, you know, I, I think a lot of that was super influential. You know, that whole geometric fencing. Um, I, I, I hesitate to say one person did it first, but an Italian did it first. 
Thanks for the dramatic pause. <laughs> I'm glad I'm glad you emphasized that just to make sure that there was no, you know, no question as to whether or not you were biased. I appreciate it. <laughs> I, 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 uh, I tell everybody this. I, I really like Spanish sources, too. I think uh, I actually feel like a lot of the Spanish sources are probably a more natural progression from doing more Bolognese fencing than actually a lot more of the thrust like linear more linear centric um later italian fencing is i i you know i i, I almost feel that way sometimes just we have the with the floor diagrams it's a lot of that stuff is very spanish influenced i know a lot of other italians are doing that too um like alessandro senese has that stuff um Docellini has a floor a floor senio as well right um and uh so I hesitate to say it's uniquely like one culture or another, or one group or another. I think it was like a popular way of learning, but I, I feel like that's cir like circular yeah. footwork styles and circular instructions all kind of follow a pattern. Um, and I feel like the Bolognese, especially Marazzo, um, and I think even even Mancellino a lot falls into this kind of more circular fencing pattern as opposed to a more linear. Not that they're exclusive of each other, but just that they favor that a little bit more in one way than the other. So. Oh yeah, no, no, I I completely agree with that. I always think of, and and maybe this is just because, you know, Chris is my instructor, but I've always, <laughs> <laughs> I've always thought of the Bolognese system as being circular. I mean, that's the way that he teaches it. So, um, you know, I went I through a whole imagine. phase. Went through a whole phase just like him, uh, right? Like I did all my all my assaults on the Senya. Like I had like a I had like a tape on the ground like i had a whole like half had a half circle in my my back patio to my uh I, i'm not sure my wife appreciated it too much but there was a giant blue <laughs> tape on my back patio where i would uh, like circle on the ground with like triangles and shit everywhere and i just yeah. had at it with circular footwork and i worked through all the assaults on there for a long time um and pretty much all of the bolognese like plays will well you can work them on the senyo um, oh yeah, yeah, like yeah without Chris... without much effort yeah, Chris and I were doing, um, let's see, what were we doing the other day? We were, I think we were doing, we were doing Dalagoke's forms on the Segno. Oh, they, they so were perfect. We were, yeah, yeah. So I think we were trying to figure out the uh, the second one, but um, yeah, walking in the guards is a lot easier. But the uh, the second one, we were trying to figure out how to do that. I've been doing a lot of those, uh, like the thrust on the beginning, the very first one that, that, uh, the thrust and falso, I think it is. Uh -huh. I don't know. Yeah, I don't know yeah. how he words it specifically. <laughs> there's a there's a bunch of names for this thrust. Um, I've been doing that actually with like a step across. So my oh, right yeah. foot, my my right foot goes to the left triangle. Yes. Um, and then on the other actions after the tramezones, um, like just after that bit, uh, when you step off from the first one, I step off to the right and I do a thrust. And then on the second one, I do a step off to the left and then a stress. Um, nice. And what's interesting is that, you know, honestly, that's, that's like Dolcellini's way of doing things. Um, yeah. Yeah. Cause he usually thrusts forward and then kind of retreats the back foot to the other line. To yeah. Yeah. Like off. that's exactly what he does. Uh, Dolcellini has this whole idea that uh, the, of the, of the point basically like uh, it's their opponent's dominant shoulder, right? So if they're right-handed, you have your sword pointed at their right shoulder. Um, and then you determine on whether or not you're the right or left side of their sword, and, or if their sword's on the left or right of yours, excuse me, that's how he words it. Um, and then you react from there. And it's always a, a step offline to the center with a compass step around to uh, kind of reassemble yourself afterwards. So. 
Yeah. So, I mean, we, we always do that. I'm, I even do that when I'm doing, you know, Daligoke's form more linear, always get it to step off to the side with that initial thrust, um, like Gordita Faccia thrust or however it is. I can't remember what the wording is either off the top of my head. <laughs> yeah. I'd have to, I'd have yeah. To. <laughs> yeah. Um, but yeah, I, I always do that. I always f just feel like I have more leverage when I do that, especially in sparring. If I ever kind of go up into Gordia de Faccia, I'm usually sort of taking it off to the side a little bit with a little bit of a half step off. So, Whether or not it's more effective or not, I, I do know you look a lot better while you do that, and that's important. To oh, me. yeah, it's, it's sexy. <laughs> but I mean, that's, I, that, is, that is like 90% of Bolognese. I mean, let's be honest. <laughs> I know I know a lot of the Bolognese guys uh, struggle with that sometimes with uh, the aesthetic versus like the function. This is like a I, I've talked to multiple other guys who talk to do their Bolognese fencing, um, and, it, and this always comes up in their head like what they think the what is the perfect form, right? That we have from like the assaults versus like how sparring works out, uh, right? And it's you know. You, you kind of have to compromise sometimes, <laughs> you know, sometimes, sometimes form like follows function and sometimes the other way around, you know? So. Yeah. Yeah. You got to find something in the middle. I mean, I have found that in my explorations of footwork and hip engagement, that using a lot more upright postures with my, my feet in terms of like actually picking my foot up off the ground allows for better hip transitions. So like if I were in Cota Longa Strata and I had my, um, just the ball of my foot on the ground, if I wanted to transition quickly to parry to go into Porta de Ferro Strata, dropping that heel down allows me to sort of turn and it naturally turns my hip. So it makes for a really quick transition. Yeah, and that's nice too, right? I feel like Porta de Ferro benefits from being profiled more. Um, and so when you make that pivot, you kind of turn your torso just a little bit into it, um, which I think covers you more, just slightly. It's one of those, yeah. it, just, it, like it narrows you just a little bit, which I think reduces your opponent's target just a little bit. Um, yeah, so I think that that's kind of an example of something where, you know, you can think of something that oftentimes is a little bit more exaggerated, like picking up that, that heel up off the ground um, when, you're, when you're forming Cota Longa Strata or some of the other guards. Um, but you know, it, it actually has some utility to it. So, yeah, you'll see that in later period rapier sources too, where the uh, they generally they're like more backweighted, um, so that the front foot is lighter, uh, and then you see that kind of go away a little bit, and it tends to be more centered. <laughs> uh, but then it kind of goes back to being more backweighted, uh, depending on what sources you're looking at. Um, I, I I I'll go back to Marcelli. He talks about really. I, some interesting things with that. He, he has some interesting footwork stuff. Um, and I, I highly recommend reading through that. Um, he either, I can't remember which one he's on. I haven't read it in a while. It's either, he, he either says be really balanced or he keeps that front foot pretty light. I think he keeps the front foot pretty light. Um, it's been a while since I've studied Marcelli. So, but uh, yeah, he does a good so job of it. That's actually something I found really interesting in Palladini. Um, speaking of sort of Bolognese sources, um, heretical Bolognese sources, perhaps. Um, <laughs> so he, with his beat, that Terza beat that I was talking about earlier, the cool thing about being backweighted is you can get enough force with your sword by just transitioning from backweighted to frontweighted with that beat to get a decent beat on somebody's sword without actually having to really move your sword. 
Yeah, it almost turns it into a uh, a push cut kind of beat like action, right? So that you're yeah. coming down on top and almost skipping off into them. I, I I hesitate to use those terms. Someone who actually fences will like critique me on that one. So, but, uh, <laughs> someone who does like really like proper like rapier would, would critique me. Um, but uh, no, that's interesting. I, yeah, I haven't worked through Paladini, so I'm, I'm looking forward to doing that at some point. I'm, I'm probably going to steal a couple students away on like a Saturday and work through it. Um, yeah, no, I mean, it's cool though. But I, I, I just wonder how many of those things though, like talking about postures and overall placement of, of body mechanics and things like that, that we kind of miss from just, I mean, I, I guess we're starting to find some of them, or perhaps I'm just starting to find some of them in my own personal study. But um, I don't know that the transition I mean, I kind of stole that from Chris. I think he's been, I can't remember who he, he told me to read. I think it's uh, Saviolo. Mm -hmm. I think he's been looking at Saviolo a whole bunch. Um, hold on, let me grab it here. Savio it, oh yeah, Saviolo's the, uh, the Italian who moved to England at some point, I believe. Oh no, he's looking at Alfieri. Alfieri. So he's been looking Alfieri. at a lot. Alfieri's, Alfieri's great. He's, uh, yeah. I, love his I love his Montante material. Yeah, so he's been looking into Alfieri a bunch, really looking at his single sword stuff, and oh, then cool. kind of like mashing up a little bit between um, just seeing how that can sort of help inform Dalagoki a little bit, which is pretty interesting. Um, and uh, he's come up with some pretty cool stuff. Um, just, I think it's inspired a lot by looking at the Anonimo and trying to figure out the certain actions in the anonymous because I mean that's I think had been his primary goal um, was going back to Delagoki to then go back into the anonymous to see what we could find um, and uh, yeah so we've been we've been playing around a lot with this sort of transition between back weighted to front weighted kind of stuff it's interesting yeah yeah I, and it's it, you know that does it shows up a bunch in like later period sources like this really heavily back weighted. Um, someone tried to explain this to me where it was it was kind of safer you know, you know you you kind of get your your danger bits away, uh you know your head and your and your your torso kind of away from the threat, um, and then that coupled with like more complex guards really keeps you pretty safe. Um, compared to a much more squared format, right? Um, where you're, much more of your torso is exposed. Um, yeah, I know it's interesting. I, I, I'd be interested to see your thoughts on this. Uh, maybe if I come up to October Fit, you can give me a lesson. Yeah. <laughs> well, Chris can. You both can, it'll be fun. <laughs> yeah, yeah, well. You you guys can you can you can show me your your Destreza heresy and I'll show you I'll show you our our hybrid you know like northern Italian sources just like pulling <laughs> everything together we can we can set the whole Bolognese world on fire together no <laughs> yeah I, I love the Bolognese stuff it's, that is my jam right Bolognese stuff is my jam um, but. Uh someone once explained to me really succinctly that what the Bolognese are doing is not unique. Um, right. It's it, we just have a lot of good writing from this one location of Italy of the Mediterranean, right? This style of fencing is like this really common all over the Mediterranean region. Right. Um, and I'm interested in that more like as a context thing, like were the Bolognese doing something different. Why was this so popular? Right. 
but it always comes back to the Bolognese stuff for me, right? Like I'm always, that is my jam. Okay. <laughs> like yeah. I, I occasionally will like I'll broach into some topic and I'll take some deep dive and I'll be like, what is Marcelli's Paso Scorso? And I'm like, oh, this is interesting. Why does he, so Marcelli is interesting because he talks very specifically about Deligoki being wrong. Um, and he, and he talks about, uh, he, he references him a lot actually as being wrong, which is interesting. Oh um, man. We got to tell Steven about the, that. Uh, Marce- <laughs> Marcelli is, is, is throwing salt all over like Deligoki and setting him on fire at the same time. Uh, it's, uh, he's pretty, he's pretty harsh in his criticism. Um, but I think it's good. It, I think, I think it's an interesting view, um, of why things are being done. So, yeah. All right. Well, paging Steven Freitas, um, <laughs> Why? What, what? What has he been diving into? Has he been, has he been driving into? Uh, oh, he he's just all over. He's I all had over him on. Place. I had him on the other day. Um, we uh, did a, a podcast episode, and he was just talking mad smack about Dalagoke. So he's gonna love that. He says yeah, Dalagoke. Yeah, he, <laughs> he says that Dalagoke is the high school equivalent of like Bolognese fencing, compared what? to like no. the Anonimo being grad school. The uh, the the Anonimo is someone's poor like ideas like compiled into some mishmash nightmare of a notebook uh, <laughs> it's, it's 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 like like if if <laughs> if delagoke is the high school book which i don't disagree with it's it's very uh basic delagoke is very great for teaching people basics um i, I i'm gonna say that the anonimo is is someone who is writing down really complex topics and really unorganized way i don't know how to describe it it's like is, is this like the undergrad who doesn't really understand how to take notes you know or, or what um, because the back half of the anatomy is super organized yeah it is yeah and like i i have a i have a pdf where i've like put it all in order by guard really well uh-huh. very specific i did the um, same thing not a pdf a cell doc um yeah. um and uh and then I was like, yeah, I should do this for the rest of the book. And I was like, nope, <laughs> that's, that's way too much work. <laughs> um, but my one of my 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 good fencing buddies, uh, Ryan Neal, he was like, that no, that's where all the good stuff is. All the good stuff is in the uh, in the unorganized section. And I was like, figures, figures that like in 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 the rough, that's where the diamonds are, you know. Um, yeah. But it's so much effort. It's just a slog to get through that stuff. Yeah, well, I mean, he also gives us an explanation of what the Paso Impuntanto is in like 147 or 149 or something like that, which is the only time I've ever seen the Paso Impuntanto explained. Barazzo does in the Sword Alone section. Sort of. I mean, he says it's basically a tondo, right? He literally says it's a tondo. Yeah. But... But... But so here's the thing. Morazzo says it's basically a tondo, but then when you read the Anonimo, he says that it's it's all predicated on the half turn of the hand after you've done like a cut. So basically the cutting a mandrito and then turning the hand out, winding that hand out is the the puntanto. That see that's interesting because Morazzo does that a lot too with the two-handed sword, where he throws that cut and draws the parry and then mm-hmm. and then fully inverts his hand for that descending thrust as that as they go up for the defense um which really is kind of like a false like if that's the description of it and that's what you would hear too then that's what that looks like to me in my mind like i'm throwing a cut and then the minute you go to parry i'm winding over and driving that thrust into you right which is maybe i mean maybe it's not that different than the way that i mean again going back to sort of explaining this to people who do kdf like the way that i taught them the falso and puntanto um so 
we have a bunch of left-handed fencers. Ew. So I didn't want to leave them out. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. Uh, <laughs> I had to. Uh, there's... I had to. I know. They're so sinister. The evil bastards. This is so evil. Uh, um, I, I was actually so, really hoping my daughter would grow up to be left-handed so she could, she, she could really she could make a living out of this or something. Or have fun with it at least in a different way. But, yeah, yeah, yeah. So, <laughs> so we have a bunch of left-handed fencers. And um, so I decided to teach them Maratza's left-first-right techniques. And so I really, I did a deep dive on Maratza's left-first-right techniques. And when I was teaching the false moon pensato that Maratza does there, um, I found that the best way to teach it, um, and really the best way to use it in application, is to kind of essentially do like an inverted Zornort play, right? Like you you cut strongly to the center over top of their sword, because you're cutting behind their sword, right? Because it's left mm -hmm. versus right. Um, and you're, he says to cut over their sword. Like he emphasizes the fact that the cut has to go over the sword. He says it's important. Um, and uh, and then basically, as they start to parry out, that's as you start to wind. Um, except you're you're kind of inverting it because you're winding away um, instead of winding into it. But you know, I mean, it's basically yeah, yeah. It's basically it's cut with, with a with a with a wind to the upper right that thrusts down. Yeah, and then as they parry out really wide, you just cut their leg because it's Maranzo. <laughs> so in uh in, i'll go back to 210 here he has one where you uh you take the arms like a um i forget what that is in german you come under their arms uh dirk laffen dirk laffen just like a dirk laffen um and then you come in for a it's either a reverso or like a or a grapple or i think that's the option like you could hit him with a reverso or go in for the grapple there nice um but yeah that, that inverted thrust after the cut it's an interesting thing it is interesting. I mean, it's, um, but yeah, so yeah, the Anonymo gives an explanation of that. And then, where is that? Basically, I don't, I, I, I haven't seen so, it. Where, where is yeah, that? Yeah, you I'll, said it's in one of the left right sections. Oh, no. Uh, the play that I was talking about was from Marazzo's left versus right. Yeah. But the Anonymous section is, uh -huh. it's later. It's, um, let's see if I can find it. You can send like, me the number later. Yeah, I will. I need the. I'll probably post it in like the in the show notes because I keep talking about it, um, and I've talked to um, Ken Harding about it. We we had a conversation about it, but yeah, Ken uh, Ken always has some great ideas about the uh, false imputata. Um, his uh, he's got that little book that he has. There's his sources, his his interpretation, which I think is really interesting. It's, it's interesting to see what other people are thinking about that stuff. Um, so. Always, yeah, yeah. But this, so it's it's weird though, because then he'll give you this like. I think one time I, I took the PDF of the um, of the Anonimo, and I just searched for the false moon puntanto, and so that's where I, I got most of this information from. Just kind of looking at all of his plays for the false moon puntanto, but then he's got some of this weird stuff where like you'll kind of cut low, and you're kind of either cutting to their leg or their hip. And then you're doing a falso impuntanto that stabs them in the guts, um, which is pretty cool. Um, but it, it just reads really weird. But he does say, and this is the interesting thing about the falso impuntanto, is he says that the falso impuntanto is never meant to land. It's always meant to threaten, but never never really to land. It's usually used as a feint. Oh, that's interesting. So it's like an Ausermind in like German 
stuff. Yeah. So like you're just outer, kind of that, like like on that pair, you go for that outer winding to try to thrust behind it. Um, but you're saying very specifically as a provocation more, which is yeah. uh, which is interesting because I think that's how Morazzo actually uses it in the in his two ten material. It's literally like thrust them this way so that they parry upwards so you can do something else to them. So. Yeah, it makes me think a little bit differently about Morazzo's like single sword progression where he does that false swing pintanto and then the reverso back behind. Um, yeah, no, that, that would make a big difference, right? Because if you're, if you're delivering that cut and you're assuming that it's parried and then you're, you're thrusting around it, um, then as your sword came around, that would set up that reverso to the other side more. Yeah. That would make sense. I'm probably, yeah. <laughs> I'm probably talking about it wrong, but uh, it was a, well, yeah, so that, I mean, this is something that I've tried to conceptualize, right? Like, if I start that out as just, like, cutting a really strong, almost like a push-cut mandrito, where I'm just sort of cutting straight into the middle and then driving my sword forward, and they go to parry, they're going to turn their sword into Porta de Ferro Stretta. And as they go to parry, I can wind out. And then as they parry out even further, because I'm winding out, then I can cut behind with that reverso. Yeah, there's a couple ways you could do that too. Since your hand would be inverted, you could do like a tremazzone reverso, or if you're really into it, just a full on tondo kind of reverso, like a full round kind of reverso. No, that's interesting. Now you got me thinking nasty. about. I'm I'm gonna be in my backyard tonight. Like I know. <laughs> <laughs> hey, speaking of your backyard, I was thinking about. So I forgot to ask you this, but when you were back there doing all your segno steps in the backyard, did your wife ever walk out and you were just like drawing like mythical symbols on your deck? <laughs> so I, I was not I was not drawing angelic symbols on the floor like the cover of Morazzo. Um But uh, it was it was literally just triangles. So no, nah. it, it stayed there forever too. I did it in uh, I did it in blue plate, painter tape so it wouldn't like cause a problem so i could yeah. like remove it but it actually lasted forever like the thing was on my back porch for like an entire summer and like didn't like come up at all so uh you know that, that's pretty that, impressive that painter tape was really <laughs> impressive what brand of painter tape did you buy <laughs> I, had, I had it set up with my uh uh i saw one a long time ago um and i and I, I i i've shared this information with a lot of other people since i found out uh but someone had a bike stand where they would hold like mm -hmm. a sword and they would do their actions on this. Um, yeah. And I, I feel like I, I largely contributed to the spreading of this idea, like right after then, right at the beginning of COVID. I forget. I have one too. I, uh, I just, was it Devin I, Borman? Because was, I think like I've seen so many videos of Devin Borman with his. Now, yeah. Now it's a thing. So I, uh, uh, I saw, I think I saw Jess Finley with it like a really, really long time ago. Um, and then a buddy of mine, Richard, you know, Richard Fang, he had a, Oh yeah, he had one. He had one, and I was like, "Where did you get this idea from?" Um, he was like, "He was like, I don't know. I just I found it on." He was like, "He goes, I found it on like uh, on on Facebook Marketplace or something like that." And, uh, <laughs> it was like it was like it seemed like it would hold a sword well, and it was a good idea. And the next thing I know, I'm like, everyone's like got one all of a sudden. Like uh, I was like kind of like sharing this info with everyone I could, uh, but I feel like everybody was sharing this info with everyone they could the minute they found out about it. And, uh, it trickled like pretty crazy. I see all people, all sorts of people with it. Now. It's so useful. But I had it it's... in the middle of my senyo, so like I could do actions with it while I was like walking around with it with like actual engagements, so I could kind of figure stuff out. Yeah, it's been good. I I enjoy using that as a pell. I mean, it's uh, it's a good good training tool. All right, so um, 
Let's, we had questions. Um, we had questions you were going to ask me. I feel like we yeah, I know. Well, we've done I mean, this I, think, <laughs> <laughs> I think we've covered a lot of these questions. Yeah. Honestly, I mean, through the course of our conversation, I like you know stream of consciousness. Look, I mean, how how do you view the strategic and tactical approach to the Bolognese system? Um, you know, I actually wrote something down for this one. I have notes in front of me because you sent me these questions. So thank you for that. Um, but uh, um, I very specifically think that the strategic and tactical approach is really about that transition from Gioco Largo to Gioco Stretta. I feel like that's really what everyone cares about with Bolognese sources. Um, and top of the tempo, right? So like the like the the five tempi that are used to to drive this kind of transition. Um, yeah, I, I think everyone. I think they really care about like being an outfighter and how you become an infighter, and what you're supposed yeah. to do in both, and how you're supposed to transition between them. Um, and we don't get that, like I said earlier, in the like earlier sources, like earlier German sources, we don't get that as much. It's more of what do we do at the Geokastrata. Um, yep. It was one of the things that led me to Bolognese. If we come full circle back to the earlier question, right? Um, was that was one of my questions? It was like, well, what do I do before then? Um, how how am I supposed to act before then? Where, where, what should I be doing? Should I should I do what we see at tournaments where we see guys like with the sword in their shoulder, kind of saunter up to each other and then assume a guard? You know, like that doesn't seem like a, I'm a great devil about to whisk someone's soul away. That seems like I'm just some like Baker who's like out for a stroll, you know, and happens <laughs> to get into a fight. You know what I mean? So. Yeah, that is perfect. You know, so one of the interesting observations that I had going through Manchilino's attacks, you know, kind of bring that back up um, was that when Manchilino is in low guards, like in his general advice, he says that, you know, the low guards are good for delivering thrusts and making parries. Um, and if you look at his low guard sections um, for his attacks um, and his counters, um, all of them are either thrusts or like he actually follows his advice um, where they're either, you know, starting out with like a falso or it's a thrust from low guards. Um, and then the high guards are the only things that uh, kind of he actually does cuts from. And I was thinking about that. And um, Maranzo has this one bit in his um, sword and targa section where he talks about how if you watch, he tell he gives you the advice because he's Maranzo and his advice is scattered everywhere, but he gives you the advice to watch your opponent's sword. And he says that by watching your opponent's sword, you can always sort of divine what they're going to do. Um, he says if they're going to deliver a thrust, they'll probably draw their hand back slightly. Um, and if they're going to deliver a cut and they're in a low guard, because I think in the instance in that play, they're in like Kotalunga Alta. And so um, they'll raise their hand in order to deliver a cut, right? And so in thinking about that and thinking about why Manchiolino gives that advice, I think because the measure that those plays are supposed to be done from in Manchiolino is going to be probably like in measure and you don't have the time to raise your hand to deliver a cut from a low guard. So you're pretty much restricted. Um, and if you think about that as a rule um, in terms of how to approach measure and whether or not what actions that you can do when you're in a specific guard. So if you're in a low guard and you step into measure, perhaps your opponent steps into measure, you're really limited to what you can do, right? Or understanding that the potential for to like, creating a tempo is there 
um, if your opponent is in a low guard, you understand that the shortest tempos are going to come from a thrust or perhaps a falso to the hand. However, if they do decide to cut at you, then they're going to have to give you a bigger tempo. And then maybe you might get that tempo from Dalagoke where they chamber their cut. Yeah, no, I, uh, I, I think that's perfect. It's, it's pretty much how I would sum it up, right? Um, the closer you get, the smaller your tempo have to be, right? right? Or, or you're just in, you're in trouble, right? <laughs> like, yeah, yeah. Like, uh, yeah, I, I, I'm sure there's exceptions, right? I'm sure there's people out there who are athletic enough to not care as much, right? Um, but uh, I think that I think that's generally good advice. You know, where the closer you get to someone, keep your actions smaller <laughs> yeah the space the space is all constrained you know you know their actions too should be smaller so you have to assume that as well um someone actually gave a made it interesting when i was at rasp last week is how like any of those actions in which i can create a tempo for myself sometimes like they limit they limit my options right they limit what i have to defend um but at the same time they they limit your opponent's options as well Right, so it's one of those games where it's like who who is making the right decision here. I think a lot of times, and if you can keep it small, you're always going to be ahead of the game. I think for some of that stuff. Um, yeah, no, that's great. That's good insight. It's a good way to word yeah. it. I like the, you were you worded that really well. I really like that. So. Well, yeah, I mean that's that's a, a recent revelation. So it's it's kind of fresh in my mind because it's something I've been thinking a lot about. And the only time from a low guard that he delivers a cut, well, at least that off the top of my head is from uh, Kotalunga Alta, and he does it with a changing step, which changes measure, which gives you time to chamber the cut and deliver a fendente to the head. Yeah. So, okay. All right. So we have your strategic and tactical approach to the system. Now, what is something that you think we as a community can improve upon to better reflect the sources in our fencing? Um, I, think, I think people should read the sources more. Um, this is a discussion that happens a lot lately is that people should read sources more. Um, or I feel like we're kind of going, going to go through a phase of transition offensers because of COVID. Uh, so we'll have, we'll have, we'll have people who've been around a long time who kind of just moved on to other activities, you know? Um, and if, and if we want to kind of preserve what we've, what progress we've made so far, more people need to read the sources and kind of and like preserve some of that. I'm super into the history part of it, like in preserving some of that. Um, like I find that part really interesting. Um, but yeah, that's it. Reading sources is my big one. And I think that the community can improve upon. Like the people who are like do a lot of this stuff really read the sources a lot. People who teach classes a lot, I find I find like really read sources a lot. But I find uh, like a lot of students sometimes struggle with this, I think. Um, for better or worse. It's cool that we have instructors who can teach this stuff. Um, but reading the sources kind of expands your mind a little bit. <laughs> so, uh. Yeah, no, I, I completely agree with that. Um, I, I, I don't think that there's anything wrong with people learning fencing from an instructor and never touching a source, but I, it does kind of break my heart a little bit that people would get into this and not, and follow that path. If that makes sense, like no, no, that's how I feel about it. That's exactly how I feel about it. Yeah, I like I, I just like, I feel like that's it's the reason you kind of come to this thing. You know, you want to, you want to understand. I mean, some people just want to learn how to historically sword fight, and that's 
I guess that's okay, but yeah, I don't know. The treatises definitely give you a window into the mind of, of the people who are writing at the time. And it is, and maybe that is because both of us have a more historical approach, but it just like, it satisfies the historical nerd in me so much. <laughs> oh, yeah. it'll take you into like interesting paths too right like like weird bits of information like the like the price of classes in <laughs> like in, yeah. in Bologna at the time like I have a pdf I have a document of this where I've like actually like like wrote this down because I, I looked this up and I like did the calculations and did the conversions to uh to like what is that in modern dollars you know like what does that look like um and uh yeah no I mean uh you you miss out on some of those like fun little things I think yeah. <laughs> and so how much? Up, how much was it in modern dollars? It comes out to about a hundred bucks a month. Hundred bucks a month for Morazzo to be your instructor. For Morazzo to be your instructor, which is pretty comparable to uh, modern martial arts classes. Maybe it depends. It depends on the class. Uh, I was doing uh, Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu for a while, um, and uh, like that, that, the price is pretty comparable to like what I found for that. You'll pay more obviously in like bigger cities, like <laughs> but. Uh, I'd probably, yeah. I'd say like, I'd say a hundred bucks is probably an average price for most martial arts somewhere around there, greater or lesser, you know, just within that range. But uh, I, I was super amused by that. Uh, there's like a whole section on where he gets like a, he, he basically is um, subsidized by the city too, to like to teach, which is cool. Yeah. Like yeah, I would it's... never have known that had I not read all the sources and did yeah. uh, internet research on it. Well, you also get introduced to so many characters too, right? Like, I mean, I started reading about Giovanni della Bandineri because of Morazzo. And then I just so happened to come across this one phrase when uh, Giovanni della Bandineri is like right before he dies, um, he is pretty much tasked with sort of co-commanding with Guido Rangoni. Mm -hmm. And writes this letter to a friend of his and literally just bitches the entire time about how lazy <laughs> and worthless Guido Rangoni and all of his men are. And I'm <laughs> and I just started laughing so hard and then I was like, I thought to myself, wait a second, Morazzo might have been there. Like <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, like the, these guys have personalities, right? And they have lives, you know. Like Brazzo has a son, I mean, that we know of, you know. Yeah. Like, like all these all these ma masters have like other parts of life. It's sad that we don't have some of that information, right? Um, it just doesn't exist, or or it did yeah. exist and was destroyed just through the the numerous conflicts in Europe from that time till now. Um, I want to know, know what I, kind of awesome textiles Morazzo made. When he started his mill, right? He had a, he had his own <laughs> business, right? Like, what is what was he making there? I don't know. <laughs> like, I know. specifically, was he making hats, making pants. Yeah, I, don't know. I don't know. Was he making pants for Meyer? Is Meyer <laughs> is Meyer really a pants catalog for Morato? <laughs> you know what? That's what I'm going with from now on. Any anytime <laughs> anyone asks me now, I'm just be like, yeah, Mariah, Meyer was just Morato's pants catalog. <laughs> that's good. Keith Keith will get a kick out of that. Uh, I don't know. <laughs> I I keep getting in trouble by poking fun at Myrists. <laughs> like you know, uh, you're supposed to though, right? I, it is our job. Not, it is our job. To, you know. Look, I'm I'm actually I'm actually really excited about the the new Meyer or recently discovered Meyer. It's not new. It's it's quite old. 
um, recently discovered Meyer getting translated and out into the public because I'm really interested to see what his take was, whether or not he knew what the Bolognese system was about or not. I'm really interested to see what his take was on the Segno and how he interprets that. Have you read any of the other Meyer, other Meyer books? Um, it, yeah, in bits and pieces, yeah. Meyer is awesome as a source. Meyer is, I don't know, he's, he's, his book is, his text is really excellent. The way he writes is like, is really great. Uh, he took a lot of time like figuring out a way to like write this either either by that was his training or that was just the way he decided to do it i, I don't know but the way his text is organized is great um and his uh his his rapier section is fantastic um yeah like, it gets really good it, it's it's I, I think he did a really good job of combining what, what i'm going to call like general mediterranean fencing styles with like a, a german approach i think he does a beautiful job of this um, yeah, no, the text is great, so I, I highly recommend reading through Meyer. Uh, I, I used I used to joke around that I, I, I Meyer I am always I always fantasize that Meyer was like visiting Bologna in the in the fall or spring as part of holiday with his family, and that's where he <laughs> learned this, you know, and they just took it back to Germany and made his own thing. But uh, yeah. who really knows, you know? Uh, it's just Meyer's maybe right now my my favorite one of my favorite secondary sources like after studying the Bolognese stuff just looking through it um like that and the Spanish stuff are so like can, there's so many cool parallels there with just what how people are doing things and and how they're kind of writing things in a different and more organized in a better way it's like you can see people's minds through these masters writings becoming more organized over time like with how they present this material and it's super interesting to see to me like if you, if you read Marazzo Marazzo reads like a guy who's like pretty smart, but maybe not like the most highly educated, right? And you right. read like Menchilino who reads like a guy who is like highly educated. And he really wants you to know it. Um, <laughs> yeah. Like writing. Yeah. Um, and then, and then after this period, like all the writing just becomes like really high quality, right? Like literally, like it's like a hundred years passes, and everybody's like writing really well all of a sudden, like, and they're really organized and it's really well structured, and modern people can look at it and be like, wow, this isn't some weird, you know poem that i have to interpret or or whatever yeah so yeah i mean literacy is an amazing thing though i do i do have to say that i think that your uh affinity towards meyer goes back to something we said earlier and it's your swiss connection <laughs> it's the it's the uh it's the meatballs yeah you. it was it's because he was born <laughs> because it wasn't no, that's swedish bad. meatballs not swiss meatballs some, some, i'm gonna get shit for that too damn it you know <laughs> is it Swiss meatballs? Like, no, it's Swedish meatballs. I yeah, it the, is Swedish I made, meatballs. I made, I made the uh, the most American faux pas for these two countries. <laughs> I can't, I can't think of a, a more American thing than getting those two countries like mixed up at this point. Well, <laughs> you know, I mean, if we're being completely honest, in the Thirty Years' War, there were probably enough Swedish people like in that area of. Germany slash Switzerland that you know maybe maybe they brought their meatballs with them. <laughs> That's terrible. You should you should cut that part out. <laughs> <laughs> Just ignore uh, that entire 
<laughs> or leave it in now. Eh, I don't know. It's funny now. <laughs> oh yeah, no, it, I'm gonna leave it in. <laughs> uh, all right. Well, any final thoughts? Uh, no, but this is great. Um, it's interesting. I actually just started listening to your podcast maybe like a month ago, and I started going through all of them, and I've almost caught up. So I've, uh, I'm pretty happy to actually be a part of all this. I'm really, really, I think yeah. this is a cool thing you're doing here. I think it's cool. Um, I'm happy to have this you. Is, on this here. is the, this is the other thing I think people should do is I think we need more content as a community. Um, yeah. Like like this is great. I think what Martin's doing is great right now um, in Germany. Oh yeah, his videos. I, I I've I've literally had like. Like I, so I was at an event recently I, I, and, and people kind of know I do Balinese like stuff, you know, now um, I probably had like 10 people come talk to me about his videos. Oh, nice. Uh, yeah. Because they're, no, like, they're really well done. So I'm really happy with that. More content is always good. Yes. Yeah. No, he's doing a fantastic job. Um, it's great to, great to talk to him and, and kind of get his mind. So yeah, I'm, I'm excited, but you know, I mean, it's, uh, it's good. We're growing. And um, it's it's good to sort of highlight the the different people who are out there. All right, man. Well, um, yeah. Have a good night. I'll talk to you later. Yeah, man. It was fun. I, uh, maybe I'll see you at uh, October Fact. So we'll see. Sure. Sounds good. And that concludes another episode of Le Arte dell'Arme, the Bolognese podcast. I want to thank Pike Pullen again for coming on and having a great time. Learned so much from this conversation. Um, you know, his uh, his approach to two-handed sword uh, is really, really unique and, and awesome. And uh, I, I love that, uh, you know, we're, we're, I can kind of build this conversation out and provide a little bit of context um, to different sides of, of how we should approach this material. Um, I hope it's been refreshing for you all, and I hope that it helps you in developing your interpretations. Um, you know, I can't thank Pike again enough for, you know, just really sharing his general uh, fencing knowledge and wisdom. Uh, there's so much good stuff in this episode that I'm, I'm really excited to share with the, the greater Bolognese community. So, um, again, to Pike, thank you so much for doing this with me. Um, there should be another episode next week of Le Arte del Arme, the Bolognese podcast. So stay tuned for that and stay saucy, my friends. <laughs>